you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. But the hand of providence was there, as you all know very well, to spare the life of the little one on the murderers to tell. And when she rose from her strawy grave to Carter's house she went, and told them of the tragedy and the terrible night she had spent. And when George Taylor heard of this, he went to his brother Bill, and told him of the mistake they had made. There is one we did not kill. This is episode 94, The Meeks Family Murders. Arthur Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. It was early on the morning of May 11, 1894, that a Mrs. John Carter, living on a farm just outside Browning, Missouri, was startled by a knock at the door. Wondering exactly who could be at her door at 4.30 a.m., Mrs. Carter opened it to find a young girl on her doorstep. What on earth could a little child be doing knocking at her door so very early? The girl came in the house, and Mrs. Carter was taken aback to notice she was very clearly severely injured and covered with blood. The girl was seven-year-old Nellie Meeks, daughter of a local farmer named Gus Meeks. For as injured as she was, Nellie was quite lucid and clear about what had happened to her. Nellie said that the night before, a wagon had arrived at the family's home. Her father gathered everyone, her mother, herself, and her two younger sisters, and together the family of five got into the wagon. They had started driving back toward Browning from their outlying farm. When they were near the Jenkins schoolhouse, one of the men shot her father. Her mother jumped out of the wagon and was also shot. Then, she said, she and her sisters were beaten with rocks. As she lay half-conscious, she seemed to recall that the wagon kept driving. She awoke hours later, wrapped in a blanket with the bodies of her family. She crawled out of this and realized they were buried in a haystack. Then she clambered her way out of the haystack and, seeing the lights of a house nearby, made her way towards it. The house, of course, was that of the Carters. Mrs. Carter sent her son Jimmy to go over to the farm the girl had indicated, that of a prosperous farmer named George Taylor. Some accounts state that Jimmy was Mrs. Carter's nephew rather than son. I'm not sure which was actually the case but more sources seem to agree that he was her son, so that's what I'm going to go with. I found a James B. Taylor from Browning, Missouri, who would have been about the right age, nine, in 1894. When he arrived, he was surprised to find George Taylor out and about, harrowing his fields. This seemed a bit strange. It had rained the night before, and the ground was muddy, 
not ideal for harrowing. Jimmy walked over to George and told him about the girl that had appeared at their house. The two walked over to the haystack and searched through it to find the bodies of four members of the Meeks family, Gus and Delora Meeks, ages 31 and 26 respectively, as well as two daughters, four-year-old Hattie and one-year-old Mamie. They then walked back to George Taylor's house, and he mounted a horse to ride into Browning and inform his brother William. Unsurprisingly, he never came back. Eventually, Jimmy realized this and returned home. His mother notified neighbors and the authorities. One thing that took me aback when researching this is just how quickly the pieces were put together and the case basically solved. When I first start researching a case, I'm often just becoming familiar with it, too. I'll usually come across a mention of the case in the paper while I'm researching another story, and I'll briefly look into it to see how much information there is available on it, and it goes on my list to look into eventually. So while I knew the bare bones of the Meeks murders, who committed them, etc., it wasn't until tracking down the initial report of the murder that I realized it had been essentially solved by the time the paper went to press, so only a handful of hours. It seems once it was known the surviving girl was Nellie Meeks and that her father was Gus Meeks, people knew who had done the murders and why. Let's go back in time four years to 1890. George Taylor was established as a prosperous farmer, and his brother William was even more so, being a banker and a local politician. In 1890, the reasons why began to become apparent. A forged check was brought to William Taylor's bank in Browning, and he refused to pay. It had been brought in by Gus Meeks, the same man who lay murdered in a haystack four years later. Eventually, both William and Gus, as well as George Taylor, were convicted of conspiracy and sentenced to five years in prison. In the end, though, none of them ended up going to jail for any significant length of time. Other scandals and accusations were made against William Taylor over the years. He burned down a photography studio for insurance money, and also an adjoining lumberyard owned by an, a relative, presumably also for insurance money. But he never suffered any consequences for these. His position and wealth got him delay after delay on legal proceedings. In 1893, there was another scandal involving cattle stolen from Warren McCullough of Milan. In this case, William Taylor, Gus Meeks, Arthur Bingham, and Abner Page were arrested and charged with a theft. Gus Meeks was the first to stand trial, but before he was put away, he testified against William Taylor and Alva Ross in the arson case. He was still sentenced to two years, but after only two months, Governor William Stone pardoned Meeks, who had agreed to testify against Taylor in the cattle theft case as well. Gus Meeks was back home only shortly before his death. As one who had a local reputation as perhaps not the brightest man, when the Taylors inquired as to his release, Gus Meeks foolishly told William that he had been released from prison to testify against him. He intimated that he could be persuaded to drop his testimony, however, if he were to be paid $1,000 and if a way for him to escape the state were arranged. On May 11th, a letter was received at the Meeks' home telling Gus that it had been arranged and that he should be ready about 10 o'clock that night. It took until midnight for the two Taylor brothers to arrive, upon which Gus Meeks loaded his family's belongings into the wagon, and all five of them got in. The portion of the story Nellie recalled then took place, and the rest, as they say, is history.
The five were wrapped in a blanket they had loaded on the wagon. Nellie recalling later that, quote, the one with the whiskers, which would have been William Taylor, hit her with a rock and even after thinking her dead, kicked her several times in the back and side and said, They are all dead now, the villain sons of bitches. The blanket was apparently set on fire in an attempt to destroy the bodies, and the hay piled on to feed the flames. But by some miracle, the wet conditions present caused the flames to not quite take hold, and so the bodies were still intact. In the minds of the locals, a miracle too was Nellie's very survival. Not only had this seven-year-old girl survived being beaten pretty badly, and also an attempt at burning, she had also made her way out of the blanket in which she and the bodies of her dead parents and sisters were wrapped, and out of the haystack without being seen by George Taylor, on whose property, remember, she was. Then once she emerged, she was faced with a choice of two nearby houses, both about equidistant from where she was. And yet, rather than choose to go to George Taylor's house, a choice which surely would have resulted in her murder, she wandered down the road to the house of Mrs. Carter. In later years, when the Meeks murders were immortalized in a number of murder ballads, this luck was attributed to supernatural intervention, whether by God or the spirit of her mother, varies. While the murders were basically solved extremely quickly, the Taylors had never returned after George Taylor left Jimmy Carter on his farm. Some variants of the murder ballads surfaced during this time. Several mentioned that the Taylors were still fugitives, but they only remained so for about a month. On May 21st, William Taylor was charged in absentia with the cattle theft charges he was facing. In the meantime, Sharon McCullough, brother of William McCullough, owner of the stolen cattle, and George Hallett were arrested as accomplices in the crime. Both were later released. Sharon McCullough had bribed some witnesses on the cattle thievery case, but neither he nor Howitt had anything to do with the murders. On June 26, 1894, a man named Jerry South came to Browning, with William and George Taylor in tow. As he described his experience at the Taylor's trial the next year, June 20th last, I went to Buffalo City, Arkansas, to look after some mining interests I owned there. It is a steamboat landing on the White River, and the city consists of one store and two houses. It is 70 miles from a railroad station or telegraph office. While at dinner, I sat with two gentlemen who watched me so closely that it excited my curiosity, and I asked the storekeeper who they were. He said they were Edwards and Pierce, two gentlemen of leisure. During the drive home from Buffalo City, the faces of the two men kept in my mind, and I knew I had seen them somewhere. I kept thinking about it, and before I got home, I knew I had seen those faces in a St. Louis newspaper in connection with a story of a murder of a family in Missouri. When I got home, I went to the newspaper office and hunted up the paper, and there were my men. They were the tailors, and no mistake. I telegraphed to Missouri and learned of the reward of $1,500 offered and received photographs of the tailors. The following Saturday, I drove to Buffalo City again and became better acquainted with the men. They had built a boat to go down the river and were ready to leave that night. I borrowed a shotgun from the storekeeper, and, as the tailors were going to the house for supper, I leveled it on them and ordered them to halt and throw up their hands. George put his hands up, but Bill reached for his revolver, and my hand was pressing the trigger when up went his hands too. In the eventual trial, 
William Taylor testified as to what had taken place after he was met by George, the morning after the Meeks were killed. George and I talked the matter over fully, and we concluded that it would be wisest to leave the country at once. We apprehended that it would not be safe for us to remain after the body was found, because we know our enemies, who were many and bitter, would stir up an excitement against us. I then got my horse, and George and I drove to the timber where Father was at work. We left the horses with him, and then went on foot. The horror that the rural community felt at the callous murders of five people, it later having been found that Delora Meeks was pregnant at the time of the killings, and the grievous injury of a young girl, led to a near constant threat of a lynching being carried out against the Taylors. But the trial wasn't scheduled until January of 1895. It was delayed until March 18th, however, and was held at the county courthouse in Carrollton. Thomas Miles Bresnahan, a second-generation Irishman and a a well-known Lynn County lawyer, led the prosecution, while Colonel John Blackwell Hale, a former state representative and later congressman, who had led the pro-Union 65th Missouri Regiment during the Civil War, defended the the Taylors. During the trial, some damning testimony emerged. Some of the most damning came from Mrs. Martha Meeks, Gus's mother. She said that the Taylors were common visitors to her son. She had heard them agree to pay her son $1,000 and commented that she always felt they'd harm her son eventually. Also called were Kitty Edens, a local Jenkins Hill woman who testified to having heard five gunshots the night that Gus Meeks, his wife, and children were murdered, Mrs. Carter, who testified about all that had taken place on the morning of May 11th when Nellie came to her house, and two men named Alfred Dillinger and D.C. Pierce, who both said that William Taylor had spoken about killing Gus Meeks. Jerry South had received a reward of $1,500 from Lynn County for the capture of the Taylors, but was promised 500 more by the state in the case of their conviction. Colonel Hale insinuated that this was the main reason he was testifying. A number of defense witnesses were relatives of the Taylors, most of whom testified that the bloodstains that had been found in the back of the wagon used were actually only red paint or denied that this staining existed at all. William Taylor's wife said her husband was home with her all night, despite earlier having told Reverend P.M. Best that he had been gone all night. Finally, the Taylor brothers themselves took the stand. William said he and his brother had eaten supper tonight around 4 o'clock on the evening of the 10th, after which George returned home and he and he went to the bank to work on some things for a few hours. He went home at about 10 o'clock that night, and that was all he knew until 8 a.m. the next morning when George came to the bank and told him that Gus Meeks was dead. When George Taylor took the stand, he confirmed his brother's story. The testimony of Nellie Meeks was not used in court, as she was at the time living with the family of one of the other prosecuting attorneys, Benjamin Pierce. On April 9, 1895, the jury took the case under consideration, but the jury was evenly split on the question of guilt or ignorance. The case was retried in July, with the prosecutors having strengthened the case against the Taylors. Now some more witnesses, among them M.S. Burdett and L.B. Phillips, were found to back up the testimony already given in the first trial by Dillinger and Pierce as to the Taylors having talked about killing Gus Meeks. Two witnesses had also been found who saw the Taylors leaving Browning on the morning of May 11th, and a former policeman from St. Louis named W.J. Freeman 
testified that in a spot near George Taylor's farm, he had found a scorched area in the woods and fragments of burnt clothing, later identified by Martha Meeks as her sons. A dramatic incident took place when Jerry South was recounting his testimony from the earlier trial and happened to mention stopping in Little Rock. He had mentioned something about staying there with a girlfriend, and while being cross-examined, nearly pulled a gun when Colonel Hale inquired as to whether she was black or white. When asked if he was armed, he answered in the affirmative and cautioned Colonel Hale to be careful. John Harris, a hired man working for George Taylor, testified against his employer, mentioning that there was blood present in the wagon and that George wiped it up. This might be a response to both George Taylor and his mother seemingly trying to throw Harris under the bus in the first trial. This time, the evidence for the prosecution was stronger and had been enough to get a guilty verdict for both brothers. The case was appealed, but the appeal was rejected and the double hanging was set for April 30, 1896. The brothers were sent to jail in Carrollton to await, to await their execution. On April 11, 1896, both of the brothers escaped from prison. William was quickly recaptured, and a sheriff's deputy named Wilson took the condemned man to Kansas City, as anger at the Taylor brothers in Carrollton made a lynching seem even more likely in the wake of their escape. George Taylor remained uncaptured, however. William later said that he and his brother had planned the escape for several weeks. They had somehow loosened the bars of their cell and made their way out. By April 28th, tensions in Carrollton had died down enough that William Taylor was returned there to await his execution. Fourteen guards accompanied him on the train. Upon his return to Carrollton, he prepared a lengthy statement stating once and for all his version of events. He maintained that he barely knew Gus Meeks, an acquaintance, to be sure, but certainly not close enough to embark on any sort of business endeavor with him. He also said Gus's mother was the only person who said that George Taylor was not at his home the night of the murder, which was, to be fair, true. And besides, he also questioned whether she was familiar enough with his brother to even know if that's who it was who showed up to pick up Gus the fatal night. He finished the lengthy statement by making Gus the sole criminal in the numerous cases that had preceded the murder, despite the fact that several others, to say nothing of William Taylor himself, had been indicted in those cases. Furthermore, he implied rather strongly that Gus Meeks murdered his family and then killed himself. Again, disregarding evidence. Was he then saying Gus Meeks rolled himself into a carpet along with his dead family and then shot himself there? Why was he on George Taylor's farm? His statement made little sense. Regardless, it was all for naught. No pardon was forthcoming from the governor, and nothing changed what was to come. Due to the strong public feelings about the case, the state militia blocked off the entire city block where the jail was located. Up to 3,000 people were said to have attended the execution, but none could have approached any closer than about half a block. At about 10.45 a.m., William Taylor was led to the gallows, and at 10.57 a.m., the lever was pulled, the floor dropped out, and the rope tightened. It took 13 minutes for William Taylor to die from the time that he fell. A few minutes before he died, he gave to his attorney, Colonel Hale, a statement to the public that he had written out. The statement read, To the public, I have only this additional statement to make. 
I ought not to suffer as I am compelled to do. Prejudice and perjury convicted me. By this conviction, my wife is to be left a lonely widow, my babies to be made orphans in a cold world, my brothers to mourn and weep. You have hastened my father and mother to the grave. I had hoped to at least live until the people realized the injustice done to me, but it cannot be so. I feel prepared to meet my God, and now I wing my way to the great unknown, where I believe everyone is properly judged. I hope my friends meet me in heaven. I believe I am going there. Goodbye, all. W.P. Taylor George Taylor never was found after the jailbreak of April 11th. There was a report of a man who appeared to be George, seen at the Grand Central Hotel in Peabody, Kansas, two days after the escape. For years afterwards, reports surfaced from far-flung places. Some said he went west, that he died in California or even Canada. Maybe Mexico or South America or even England. His ancestry page claims he died in Nevada. Several sightings of men said to have been George Taylor surfaced from Oklahoma. Thomas Bresnahan's brother claimed to have known he was somewhere along the Cimarron River. A U.S. Marshal named High Thompson claimed that George Taylor was living in Mounds in 1902 or 1903. J.J. Fleming said he had met George Taylor in Durant. Fleming said he was certain in this, since he was from Missouri and had actually met George Taylor a few times. In 1926, an old hobo died in Sand Springs, Oklahoma, on the outskirts of Tulsa. He had been living in an old city dump for about five years and claimed it as his domain. He constructed a rough cabin from junk he had scrounged and had what was said to be dozens of dogs patrolling his quote-unquote property. Another drifter named C.E. Kennan, who had over time become probably the closest thing to a friend the old hobo had, said he had confessed to him before his death that he was George Taylor and that with his brother he had murdered a family back in Missouri years before. So did George Taylor die as a nameless hobo in a garbage dump in Oklahoma? Or did he just have a doppelganger in the area? Ironically, it was to the Indian Territory, later Oklahoma, that the Taylors were supposedly arranging for Gus Meeks and his family to travel when they killed them. As for Nellie Meeks, she eventually went to live with John and Mary Page, her mother's parents. It was said that for the rest of her life, she had a dent on her forehead from where she had been struck with a rock that night. When she was 17, she married 21-year-old Albert Ross Spray. A year later, in February 1905, she gave birth to a daughter named Harriet, after one of her sisters. She herself died less than a month later due to complications from the birth. Some say due to medical issues resulting from the injuries she received at the hands of the Taylors. Her daughter Harriet died in 1977. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description, and photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarknessPodcast at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. There's links to all these pages in the show description as well. And so, 
Until next time, this is Andrew, signing off. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.